Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, Episode 19. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to talk about the three violin sonatas of Opus 30. All three were composed between 1801 and 1802, a period in which Beethoven was remarkably productive, especially considering the fact that his anxiety level seems to have been extremely high for much of the period. It was, of course, the period in which Beethoven authored the so-called Heiligenstadt Testament, a letter written to his brothers which was never sent. In it, he tells of the despair he felt as he came to realize that the difficulty he was experiencing with his hearing was not lessening and would, in fact, probably grow worse. But the letter combines this expression of fear about the future with at least a partial sense of resignation. He describes how these anxieties almost drove him to take his own life, and it was only his art that held him back. It's certainly an intense and moving document, but since the letter and its implications are thoroughly covered in almost every Beethoven biography ever written, I'm not going to dwell on it here. As I've mentioned in earlier episodes, it's often difficult to draw a straight line between a composer's emotional or mental state and the details of a specific composition written while presumably in that state. And since Beethoven was offering three violin and piano sonatas under a single opus number, it would naturally be in his best interest to make sure that each of the three displayed a strong and independent musical personality. The first of the three in A major contains three movements in more or less conventional forms for the period. The first is in 3-4 time and marked allegro. The first reaction to the thematic material for this movement may well be that it is pleasant but unremarkable. The opening two-measure motive presented by the piano serves as something of an introduction to the main melodic idea. It's really just a quick little 16th note ascending and descending flourish, starting on the tonic note, leading to an ascending triad that then moves up another step to a dotted half note, which overlaps with the start of the more lyrical melodic phrase that follows. Here's just the two-measure introductory motive. It's not an introduction in the conventional sense, We've seen a number of those, and they're all longer than two measures. This two-measure motive functions more as a lead-in to the main, more lyrical idea, or as Angus Watson puts it, a framing device which not only introduces the more lyrical idea, but plays an important role later in the movement as well. The more lyrical thematic idea begins with a dotted half-note tied into the next bar and followed by an ascending line in quarter notes in the piano right hand this against a line in contrary motion in the left hand, and a countermelody in the violin, which shows some independence but frequently moves in thirds beneath the piano right-hand melody. The phrase comes to an end on the tonic note, coinciding with the return of the lead-in motive I played earlier. Then the first part of the lyrical piano right-hand phrase is heard up an octave in the violin, with the piano basically reproducing the violin's original countermelody. The violin stays with the original melodic phrase for the first four bars, but then adds on a four-bar extension in which the melody descends an octave lower than it began. Let's hear that much. 
excerpt ran beyond the first subject to the modulatory transition, which began with a forte return of the opening two-bar motive in the piano. That same motive actually occurs twice more during the transition, once doubled by the violin and once heard in both right and left hands in the piano. Also heard in the transition, which doesn't actually start modulating to the dominant until two bars before the second subject actually shows up, are motives from the original violin countermelody now played in the piano left hand. Many commentators have found the second subject in E major, the key of the dominant, somewhat more interesting than the first. It begins quietly in the piano after a series of repeated notes, with a repeated figure featuring an ascending leap of a fourth, which then slides back down the scale. This figure appears three times in a row, each time starting a step higher, increasing the size of the ascending interval, and adding a decorative trill. These three link measures are capped off by a descending scale motive. The next four bars are more or less a filled-in, more elaborate version of the first four bars, finishing with a series of descending triadic arpeggios in the violin, which introduce the violin's version of the second theme. Here is the entire second subject, 16 bars in length. Right at the end of my excerpt, after the cadence on the dominant in E major, you heard the first truly dramatic gesture of the movement, and presumably the beginning of the closing section. Here we crescendo into a chromatic chord which we did not expect. It's actually the dominant seventh chord in the key of C sharp minor. In the closing section, the piano continues its crescendo with a swirling and somewhat angry sounding series of sixteenth notes. Then the violin takes its turn with this new theme. But by this point, we have, again unexpectedly, arrived back in E major. And so the new closing section theme sounds quite a bit less menacing, even rather genteel in the end. Here is the closing section. After the closing section comes to a cadence in the key of the dominant, we encounter a fairly brief and relatively quiet codetta. Some of the motivic ideas introduced here are new, often based on descending four and five note scale fragments tossed back and forth between piano and violin. But that opening to measure motive has a role to play here as well, near the beginning of the section and again near the end where we return to the original tonic of A major. Here is the codetta. Thank you. 
The development section is really quite clever. That opening motive naturally has a big role to play, both at the beginning and in the middle of the section. But the elegant second theme also plays an important role, as do some lesser motives from the modulatory transition. And of course, as in most development sections, we modulate around freely, even hovering around C-sharp major at one point. But we are going to leave this movement and move on to the next. The middle movement in D major and 2-4 time is marked Adagio Molto Espressivo and is in the form of a short rondo. The first theme, unfolding softly in the violin against repeated dotted rhythm figures in the accompaniment, is equal parts elegant and noble. It begins on the fifth of the scale and gently moves down a third in the second measure. Both in terms of harmony and use of non-harmonic tones, the eight-measure theme is generally conservative, although Beethoven does use a chromatic chord, a secondary dominant type chord, to momentarily shift the key to B minor in measures three and four, where the opening phrase is restated. The last four bars of the theme introduce new motives as the melody soars a little higher, before gently descending again, even introducing some dotted note rhythms in the second to last bar to mirror the piano accompaniment. In the next eight bars, the melody shifts to the piano, while the violin places a simple but elegant countermelody against it. Here are the first 16 bars. The first episode, which begins in B minor, follows immediately, no transition section, in the violin, with the piano continuing its dotted rhythm figures against it. Although it's a new idea, it's very similar stylistically to the refrain theme, and really sounds more like an extension of that theme built on the rhythmic motive from the second measure than the sort of strongly contrasting episode we've heard in some earlier rondos. It does introduce one new rhythmic element in the third measure, 16th note triplets, as the theme crescendos and picks up rhythmic momentum right before it cadences on A major in the fourth bar. The piano then takes over, now in D major, following the violin's lead for the first two measures, but then going its own way with a series of quick little arabesques which ultimately take us to a trilled fermata on F sharp, which we're going to hear as the dominant of B minor.
But we don't continue in B minor. Instead, we're back in D major for the return of the refrain theme. Following that return, we do encounter a transition this time, a slightly problematic one in which everything simply comes to a stop and the piano goes about transporting us to B flat major, a key which is obviously quite distant from both B minor and D major. This leads to an episode which eventually bears some relationship to the original refrain theme in its use of dotted rhythms, but which consists mostly in the beginning of a series of arabesque-like flourishes in both instruments. Here's an excerpt which begins after the modulation to B-flat major and right before the rather dramatic main thematic idea of the episode enters, which is, somewhat surprisingly, in an unstable D minor. Of particular note here is the strong chromatically descending line in the piano left hand, which adds so much to the sense of momentum. You'll also notice as the episode unfolds how the earlier triplet figures from the first episode have returned here, now taking on a much more prominent role. You heard at the end of that excerpt how neatly Beethoven set up the dominant chord on A major, just waiting to hurl us back into D major and the final recurrence of the refrain theme. I'm not going to play that final recurrence, although it does display a number of fresh elements, but I am going to play the coda that follows it, a coda that has been singled out by a number of commentators as perhaps the most captivating part of the movement.
It's a lovely conclusion. Watson refers to it as a meditation on the opening theme which offers comfort to the most despairing of minds. After this impressive slow movement, the finale, a theme in variations, is sometimes thought of as being a bit of a disappointment. The movement is in A major, cut time, and marks simply Allegretto con variazione. The theme is a mostly guileless one, with a single across-the-bar tie leading to a mild syncopation, probably its most distinctive element. But themes like this one, apparently unremarkable, sometimes inspire some truly remarkable variations. In this case, I would suggest that the theme inspires some interesting variations. The first half of the theme is presented first by the violin with conventional broken chord accompaniment in the piano. Then the piano takes over against a more sustained countermelody in the violin. The second half of the theme, like the first, broken into eight-measure statements, begins on the dominant where the first half ended and is a little more rhythmically active. There are six variations, but I'm only going to play number five. It has two rather contrasting sections, the first in A minor and the second in B-flat major. In these two sections, Beethoven engages in an almost complete reconstruction of the original theme, while still constantly quoting and referencing its most important motives. Here is the first section in A minor and the first part of the second section in B-flat.
The other variations are, of course, inventive enough on their own terms, but variation number five is perhaps the only one to match the level of emotional nuance we heard in the coda of the middle movement. We're going to move on now to the second sonata of the set, Opus 30, number 2, in C minor, Beethoven's seventh violin and piano sonata, nicknamed the Eroica. It is, of course, a dramatic work. Given its key, it's hard to imagine that it wouldn't be. But it's dramatic rather than tragic, and also features some heroic gestures, which link it to some degree to the Eroica symphony. The first movement, in common time and marked Allegro con Brio, begins in the piano with a powerful two-measure motive based on a C minor triad, starting on the fifth of the scale, which it asserts boldly with a dotted half note, before moving on the fourth beat of the measure to a rapidly descending figure of four sixteenth notes, still based around the minor tonic triad. It's quiet at first, marked piano, but played in octaves by right and left hands, it bristles with foreboding. A variant of the first measure is then heard up a fourth on the subdominant chord. Beethoven then introduces an equally powerful descending motive, still in octaves, that charges down the scale, ending with descending chromatic half-steps over a crescendo, which leads finally to a softer cadence on the dominant. With the initial eight bars probably heard more as an introduction, the violin then enters with what would probably be considered the first theme proper up an octave in measure nine, again piano. The melody for the first four bars is the same as in the introduction. Bars five and six make use of the same rhythmic motive, a dotted half note followed by four sixteenths, and also starts on an F, the fourth scale degree but here the four sixteenths descend by step rather than by half step. The next measure duplicates this motion a step higher, and the last two slow down the rhythmic momentum to introduce a subdued cadence figure. I'll play it in just a minute. Beethoven scholar Louis Lockwood has made an excellent point about the relationship between the opening measures of the movement and what I've referred to as the theme proper introduced by the violin in the ninth measure. Referring to this movement, he states, Beethoven was now experimenting consciously with the idea of building works in which large-scale movement forms evolved not from symmetrical phrase patterns or long-breathed melodies, but from abrupt, terse figures, stated early, and then composed out to far-distant consequences through the wide range of a sonata form movement. It is true that the violin theme beginning in measure 9 could be thought of as made up of long-breathed symmetrical phrases, but it is also true, as Lockwood suggests, that the essential motive on which so much of this movement will be based is that abrupt, terse figure stated in the first two measures. By the way, Lockwood points out that this holds true for the first movement of Opus 30, number 1, as well, but it may be a little less obvious there. Meanwhile, as accompaniment to the theme proper introduced by the violin, the piano makes use of quick broken chord patterns and, in the lower bass clef range, 
a periodic use of alternating tonic and leading tone 16th notes. This second device is especially ear-catching. Beethoven has used similar devices to suggest the rumbling of thunder, but Watson and others have suggested a more military reference, perhaps the echoing of cannon fire in the distance, or could this be meant to suggest some sort of inner turmoil? It's impossible to know. Here is the eight-measure proper first subject, played by the violin beginning in measure nine. A very dynamic transition follows, primarily based on the descending motive from measure 5 of the theme in the piano, now adorned with offbeat accents and introducing new violin countermotives against it. We crescendo, decrescendo, and crescendo again, all in the space of six measures. But the drama peaks with alternating fortissimo chords in piano and violin. These appear twice, the second time jerking us somewhat abruptly into E-flat major, the key of the second subject. The second subject is a jaunty, military-styled march with its repeated dotted rhythms. Is it heroic? Not especially. It actually appears, initially, to be similar in type to the one that Figaro employs to send Carabino off to war in the marriage of Figaro. The violin takes its turn with this new melody first, and then the piano left hand takes over with the melody shifted down a couple of octaves, under a perky countermelody from the violin, doubled by the piano right hand. As you heard, my excerpt seeped into the next section, a transition which is a bit more serious in nature, introducing a hint of harmonic instability, with violin and piano alternating ascending scales over pounding repeated octaves in the left hand, and eventually introducing a new syncopated motive in the piano against busy staccato passage work in the violin, as we return securely to E-flat major. Eventually, this turns into a closing section, and we soon get a full stop on a B-flat chord, the dominant in E-flat. At that point, we encounter a very quiet section, beginning in E-flat major, which, in the left-hand bass line, draws clearly from the opening motive of the movement, 
while the violin makes references to a more lyrical motive we heard first in the modulatory transition, sometimes relying on double stops in the process. Furthermore, the tonality soon turns out to be quite fluid, with several chromatic notes being reinterpreted enharmonically. Is this a codetta? Not a typical one, certainly. Is this the beginning of the development section? Usually these matters are clear enough, but Beethoven does not in this instance provide a double bar and repeat sign at the end of the exposition. Perhaps he omitted those things in this case because he wanted the listener to experience a certain degree of formal uncertainty. As this section proceeds, it becomes very clear that this is, or at least has become, the development section, as Beethoven brings back his jaunty march in A-flat major initially, but soon touching on a series of keys. Eventually, it reveals some decidedly serious overtones, especially after it is stripped down to its first three notes, which are tossed back and forth almost violently at times. We'll hear that much. Recapitulation proceeds more or less normally, the jaunty march now returning in C major rather than E flat major. It still doesn't seem like a very heroic theme in and of itself, but the substantial and very dramatic coda is certainly heroic enough to make up for it. We'll move on now to the next movement, an impressive adagio cantabile in A flat major and common time. Watson describes it as a heartfelt elegy, and other commentators have referenced its heavenly beauty and warmth of emotion. The first melodic statement, a lengthy one, begins in the piano with a pair of quarter note pickup notes and proceeds mostly in two measure units. The second two bars, a richer variant of the first two, nudging expressively up the scale. The melody peaks in measure five on a chromatic diminished chord before undulating down the scale. Gentle, sometimes lush dissonances occur frequently on accented beats, sometimes even doubled in thirds. Here are the first eight bars, ending on E-flat major, the dominant chord.
The violin takes over the melody for the next eight bars, ending again on E-flat major. Then a mildly contrasting idea of four bars is introduced in the piano, characterized by a pair of yearning augmented chords and a gradual melodic ascent, accompanied by a gentle violin countermelody. Here is that contrasting idea leading back to a varied repeat of the original melodic idea, distinguished this time by an ascending chromatic line in the left-hand bass line and some new triplet figures. Following this, the violin takes up the four-bar contrasting idea, and then piano and violin finish up the section together with a last reference to the original melodic idea. The rather lengthy initial melodic statement concluded in the original tonic key of A-flat major, but right after the final cadence in that key, Beethoven switches to A-flat minor and introduces a new, strongly contrasting theme in the violin, eight bars long, unfolding slowly, almost completely in half notes, against staccato arpeggio patterns in the piano. The roles are then reversed, with the piano right hand taking the new melody, supported by block chords, and the violin trading off ascending staccato arpeggios with the piano left hand. Here's part of the new contrasting theme. The staccato arpeggios are transformed into flowing patterns of sixteenth notes in a series of winding scale-wise passages in a transition that takes us back to A-flat major for the return of the original melodic idea. It's presented by the piano, which virtually duplicates the opening passage of the movement. But the violin has not quite given up on the staccato arpeggios that played an important role in the contrasting section we just heard. 
but after just four measures, the staccato arpeggios have been replaced by a new rhythmic idea, a dotted 16-32nd note figure which, as Watson points out, seems to harken back to the jaunty, march-like rhythms of the second subject from the first movement. This glance backwards is a brief one to be sure, but it is almost certainly a purposeful gesture. The violin then restates the original melody against a flow of 32nd notes from the piano, mostly scale-wise, but including some broken third patterns. And in fact, much of the initial thematic statement returns in varied form, with the most dramatic changes coming in the considerably more active piano accompaniment. The coda brings back the original theme again, this time adorned extensively with triplets, and somewhat surprisingly, marked at one point by a shift from A-flat to C major, and interrupted by scale-wise flourishes confirming C major in the piano. After a few measures, we work our way back to A-flat again, only to be interrupted by C major again. But once more, after a brief stop in F major, Beethoven brings us back to the original tonic of A-flat, and a series of swirling scale lines and triple-stop violin pizzicatos take us to the end of the movement. The third movement, Scherzo, is in C major, where the unexpected plunges into C major in the previous movement pre-echoes of this key, perhaps. At any rate, it's a lively movement and one of Beethoven's more jocular scherzos. It hovers between a quick, courtly minuet and a rustic country dance, with a series of short two-bar phrases, most beginning with dotted eight sixteenth note pickups. After eight bars, the violin takes over the melody from the piano, while the piano provides more dotted rhythm flourishes against it. The violin then applies a busier and noisier two-bar tag to end the section solidly on G major. Here is the first 16-bar section. You no doubt noticed Beethoven's quirky use of accents, which at times seem to divide the triple meter measures into duple units. The longer second section, which modulates around a bit, does less of that, but still retains an unusually playful use of accents and dynamic contrasts. The dotted rhythms, often adorned by grace notes, continue to play a major role here, and at one point, 
a similar dotted rhythm figure is repeated several times in a row, first by piano and then violin, almost to the point of becoming a caricature of a martial rhythm, and quite possibly referring back to the march from the first movement. Then a series of repeated triplets on a single note in the violin, on the fifth scale degree in A minor at that point, over more unexpected weak beat accents reinforced by the piano, adds to the general and very appealing eccentricity of the movement. We eventually return to a sort of normalcy in the last part of the second section, which reproduces the first section, albeit adjusted with a few unexpected chromatic chords and the need to conclude on the original tonic of C major. The trio section, although employing the occasional weak beat accent, is perhaps a little more mundane, or at least less quirkily attractive, so we're going to skip over it and move on to the finale in C minor, cut time, and marked allegro. It's a charmingly quixotic movement and begins again with one of those introductions that are actually quite a bit more than an introduction. The opening three bars, which begin quietly, set up a chromatic dominant preparation chord, often referred to as an Italian sixth chord, although there's nothing particularly Italian about it. In bar four, we arrive at the expected dominant chord, which has crescendoed up to fortissimo at this point. The music immediately quiets again, and we hear another grouping of chords, all played staccato, which are also designed to set up the dominant chord. Then the first four bars are repeated, the piano more actively abetted by the violin this time. This is followed by a more active variant of the second four bars, all of this finally coming to a close on the tonic C minor chord. It certainly can be considered the first melodic statement, and some commentators do exactly that. But there's no question that it has the feel of an introduction about it that or a framing device of the sort we've encountered earlier. But if it is to be considered an introduction, it's certainly not one of those introductions that starts things rolling and then is never heard from again. What I'm referring to as the first theme is a more lyrical melodic idea, initially presented in the piano, starting on the tonic chord and ending on the dominant. After four bars, the violin takes up the idea, but it's cut off in the middle of the last measure as a new version of the introductory bars appears, designed to move us away from the original key of C minor and toward the relative major key of E flat to set up the second subject. This takes a bit of time to accomplish and necessitates the introduction of a new undulating scale fragment 
repeated sequentially by piano and violin, often harmonized in tenths, before we reach our destination 16 bars later. Here is an excerpt beginning with the introduction of the more lyrical theme, moving on to the modulatory transition, which begins with a new variant of the opening measures, but then proceeds on to the sequential repetition of the new motive. The second subject in E-flat major is another march, as guileless, at least initially, as could be imagined. It really combines two ideas, both very simple. The violin bounces around between notes of the tonic and dominant chords, mostly with staccato quarter notes, and after two bars, the violin overlaps it with its own simple idea, based on a series of repeated staccato quarter notes on the fifth scale degree which ends with a decorative flourish and a drop down a third. But as the little march proceeds, it surprises us by changing keys in transit, skipping through F minor, G minor, and A flat major before concluding on B flat major, the dominant in the key of E flat major, where we began our journey. But Beethoven is not finished with this little march. A dominant seventh chord in B flat resolves not to E flat major, but to E flat minor, and Beethoven again threatens us with other key centers before finally coming to rest right back where we began, in E-flat major, to introduce the closing section. We'll hear the apparently guileless little march and follow its adventures through to the beginning of the closing section. The closing section opens with a lyrical phrase from the first violin, which is soon joined in a more elaborate version of the same phrase by the piano right hand. But it's not long before a familiar motive from the introductory measures inserts itself, just the first four notes of it, and soon we are back in C minor, and the entire 14-measure introduction is repeated, its function this time to introduce a development section. This new section begins in a somewhat unlikely way, the first lyrical theme presented in C major rather than C minor. But after the theme is heard once in the violin and once in the piano, a new motive is introduced and bandied back and forth between violin and piano right hand on different pitch levels. Then, as we crescendo toward forte, another partially new thematic idea is introduced. It's clearly based on the first lyrical theme, but more forceful and with bolder leaps. It is this idea, soon transported to C minor, that dominates the next several measures, even treated imitatively between the piano and violin. The opening four-note motive then takes on a life of its own, 
repeated again and again in the left-hand bass line, fortissimo, doubled in octaves, and each time a step higher. Here's the closing section going into the very dramatic development section. It will come as no surprise that the recapitulation begins with the introductory section, starting piano but crescendoing quickly just as before. But what follows is no simple restatement of previous themes now in the tonic key. The lyrical theme first heard in the violin returns here in the piano, but in B-flat minor, and its first four notes are soon separated from the rest of the phrase and developed quickly through various tonal centers, although we do soon end up back in C minor. The march theme is also developed a bit, fainting toward different keys along the way. Everything else unfolds in a generally predictable manner until we encounter a presto coda, which can't seem to decide whether to be grimly serious or flippant. At the very least, it finishes off the movement in a blaze of energy. But we are going to move on now and take a quick look at Opus 30, number 3, in G major. The opening movement of the work, in 6-8 and marked allegro a sigh, begins with one of the most ebullient musical gestures Beethoven ever conceived. The opening motive heard in the violin and piano bass clef range, where it's doubled in octaves, which Watson cleverly compares to a spinning top, swirls down a fourth from the tonic note in 16th notes and then right back up again, leading immediately to a skyrocketing ascending tonic triad in staccato eighth notes. It then toys briefly with some offbeat arpeggio figures, capped off with a frolicsome grace note in the violin, and then turns around and does the whole thing again. (laughs) 
this is one of those first subject areas that really contains a group of themes rather than a single subject or theme, all in the original key. And the second theme of this group, marked dolce and much more lyrical, picks up immediately after the first has exhausted itself. It's heard first in the piano and then violin. We're already hearing signs here of the modulation to the dominant, but the next thematic idea, which really just seems more like an extension of the one you just heard, makes that modulation even more emphatic. So now we've arrived securely in D major, the expected key of the dominant, where we expect the second subject to be introduced. Or have we? The first chords we encounter tell a different story, pushing us in the direction of first B minor and then E minor. And the first thing we encounter thematically is our familiar spinning top motive. Now, soon enough, we do hear a clear melodic statement of something that seems as if it could be considered a real second subject. It begins in E minor, but unfolds in sequential patterns that soon bring us securely to D major. Except, when we get there, it turns out that we're really in D minor. As you could hear at the end of my excerpt as we approach a codetta, we are finally in D major, and it is in that key that the exposition comes to an end. The second movement is a graceful minuet with some perhaps surprisingly wistful passages, and the finale, in 2-4 and marked Allegro Vivace, is a wonderfully sprightly and good-natured movement. A listener waits in vain for any cosmic events to seize the music and reveal its hidden depths, but it is as thoroughly likable as any finale the young Beethoven ever composed. It might be suggested that this final violin and piano sonata is more conventional and takes fewer risks than the first two, and as such, its successes are less noteworthy. But even our very quick look at the first movement of the G major sonata shows that while Beethoven's novelties may be less conspicuous in this work, they are not insignificant. And if this sonata is often described as presenting a well-balanced and perfectly harmonious whole, that's certainly a reason to celebrate it rather than the opposite. 
For our next episode, we'll look at the piano sonatas of Opus 31.